0: If you are able, I invite you to stand right now for the reading of God's word. We're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, verses 18 through 25. Let's hear God's word. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We're in a series right now called Christmas Gifts, and today we come to consider God's gift of peace for our problems. Now, in calling it God's gift of peace, that's underscoring the fact that peace isn't something that you and I can work up artificially. It's not something that we can create or manufacture. It's a gift of God. So what is this amazing gift of peace all about anyway? Well, let me give you um, my homemade definition. Here it is coming up, hopefully here it is on the screen. Peace represents freedom, freedom from strife and conflict that leads to tranquility, harmony, and inner rest. I'm wondering, as you look at that definition, would that describe your life right now? Would you say that you know something about freedom from strife and conflict leading to tranquility, harmony, and inner rest? I mean, let's face it, Christmas for many of us is a time that tends to intensify the pressures, right? The tensions. It's often a time of anything but peace. I mean, just think of what's going on in our lives these days. With all the anxiety, for example, with reference to COVID and COVID variants, will you travel this holiday season? And should you? Maybe you'll decide to stay home and entertain family and friends. Again, I think the question needs to be asked, should you? And if you're not able to celebrate Christmas the way you would want because of restrictions, maybe self-imposed restrictions, family restrictions, government restrictions, whatever they may be, how are you gonna cope with the disappointment on top of all the other disappointments that you've been experiencing throughout this year? And then you come to church hoping to find this place as a place of healing from the hurts of life and experiencing peace for your problems. And what do you discover? Well, the church is in a time of transition. Many of your friends have left and you kind of look around and maybe today you are grieving. So on top of all the stuff related to COVID, Here we come to church, and perhaps we're in a state of grief. And if that doesn't do it for you, um, in terms of explaining some of the tensions and the difficulties, we still need to get ready for this holiday, right? We still need to get all the shopping done, the gifts wrapped, the tree up, cards mailed, baking done, all before an inflexible date that's coming, whether we're ready for it or not, right? December the 25th. And then maybe for some of us who are here today, this season creates additional tension because we're aware of the fact that God and us are not exactly on the best of terms. And this holiday season, giving gifts and hearing carols and coming to a service like this tend to remind us of of that difficulty. So put all of this together, and it's not too surprising, is it, that many of us are really not experiencing a whole lot about peace this season. So what do we do about it? I mean, is there an answer? Well, that's exactly what I wanna talk about uh, this morning with reference to the Christmas story. Wow, Joseph must have been a man under tremendous stress. You talk about the difficulties of strife and conflict and all of this. I mean, that's Joseph. As the author of this Gospel, Matthew, talks about the Christmas story from Joseph's point of view. And the first thing he draws to our attention is his description of what things are like when life caves in. So this is how he begins the section in verse 18. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, a nice euphemism for a sexual relationship, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So here it says they were pledged to be married. Some of the old translations have that they uh, were betrothed. But then you begin to read how they're described as husband and wife. Now, wait a minute. They're not actually married yet. They're still called husband and wife. They haven't come together to consummate their relationship. And he's thinking of divorcing her when they're not even married? I mean, how do we explain all of this? Well, we do so by understanding that marriage among the Jews consisted of three very significant phases. The first of which was called engagement. Nothing like what we understand engagement uh, to be, certainly. I mean, if their engagement was anything like the norm of the day, it would have been arranged by parents. When they were quite young, marriage was thought to be far too important to be left to the emotion of a, of teenagers. So parents would arrange it. Oftentimes, when the when they were kids, you know, like six, seven, eight, nine years of age. I was thinking the other day: Can you imagine you're in, say, second grade, and you're like, what, seven years of age, and they're seated across the way in another desk as your fiance? I mean, that would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? That's the first phase, engagement. The second was called what is found here, uh, betrothal. Typically then when this uh, young couple became of marriageable age, either one of them could opt out of the relationship, no questions asked. But if they decided to go forward, they would come together in the presence of some witnesses and they would write up a formal covenant which would spell out, obviously, all kinds of of technical things. And from that moment on, the time of their actual betrothal, they were referred to as husband and wife legally. They still lived with their parents. They totally avoided any sexual intimacy for two reasons, primarily because that would have been contrary to the law of God, that would have been seen as, as sin And the second reason is that the father, under this covenant arrangement, was to present his daughter to her husband-to-be as a virgin. And so there was no sexual activity during that period of time. But this covenant was considered so binding that the only way out of it was by means of divorce. So maybe now we're beginning to understand something of what's going on here in terms of the background of. Jewish marriage ceremonies and how the whole thing worked. So they are betrothed, they've gone through that part of the the deal, they've made a commitment to one another, they haven't consummated their relationship, but they're still living with their parents, okay? But he's thinking now of divorcing her because he finds out that she's pregnant. All of that would lead ultimately to the third phase And that's the actual service, which took place approximately a year after betrothal. So it's during this period of time, betrothal, that Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. He knows he's not the father. And so, I mean, you can imagine, um, how does he find out? Well, we're not told. I mean, maybe Mary told him, maybe he hears local gossip taking place outside If he had a carpenter shop, you know, that sort of a thing. But at any rate, Joseph's life caves in. I mean, it seemed obvious to him what had happened. This woman that he thought was a virgin wasn't a virgin. Maybe she didn't really care for him in the first place. And so here's, put yourself in his shoes. I mean, aren't you filled at this point with a lot of doubts and questions and hurt? and pain and disappointment and grief and anger. All of this is going on, I'm sure, in this man's life. And certainly in a very small town like Nazareth, just about a matter of time before everybody's going to know, just look at Mary. I mean, she's obviously pregnant. Everybody would be aware of that. So gone are, are this man's dreams. A marry, marrying the woman that he cared about, having kids, letting them grow up, Normally, you know, in in the place that he called home, Nazareth, this little village, and living happily ever after. So what does all of this mean for you and for me? Well, I think it means this. When you and I are crushed by circumstances, and we're living with a lot of disappointment, whether it's COVID-related, church-related, financial pressures, health concerns, relationships that aren't really right as you would want them to be right now, when we're feeling all of these things, sometimes it's hard to even imagine that God can make life feel good again. Maybe that's where you're at right now, just like Joseph, and it feels like emotionally you've been hit by a truck, that your life is caving in. Okay, so what do you do? I mean, how do you cope? Where do you go to find peace? Well, some steps follow in the narrative that I think can be healing. And if we're willing to carry them out, I think it's going to lead us to some peace. All right? So what are the steps? Well, coming back to Joseph, a key step to our experiencing God's peace is like Joseph are wanting to do the right thing. I mean, that's not always what we do, is it? When we're wounded, when we're hurt, when others have disappointed us, sometimes we just wanna get even. Sometimes we wanna go to our small group of friends and tell them how this person has hurt us and why we triangulate the situation. We slander that person's reputation. Not Joseph. Oh no, look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, a couple of options were open to Joseph. Actually, if he had lived back in the days of Moses, when the law of God was initially given, there wouldn't have been any options. Assuming that Mary was unfaithful, she would have been taken out and stoned to death. No options. But the Jews of Joseph's day um, felt it was okay that they were open to applying less stringent laws. So he has a couple of options. One is he could, you know, expose Mary to public humiliation and disgrace, charging her with unfaithfulness in a court of law. Everybody would know about it, and Mary's reputation would have been ruined. Well, the other option, of course, is to do things in a very private manner. Two parties could come together, the presence of witnesses, write out what was called a bill of divorce. They didn't even have to give the reason for the divorce on the bill of, of divorce. It was like no-fault divorce. And uh, no one would know what had happened. And that, of course, is the option that Joseph has, had chosen. But you know, sometimes it can be very difficult to know what action to take. I mean, the law says one thing, but if you implement the letter of the law, it could destroy somebody's reputation. So you're left with a question, what, what do we do? What do you do? If you discover as a parent that one of your adult children has developed um, a drug addiction and is making life miserable for the entire family, brothers, sisters, mom, dad, everybody is being ruined by this person's behavior. You feel like saying, go live elsewhere. But more than likely, your child is gonna end up living with the so-called friends that are supplying the illegal drugs in the first place. So what do you do as a parent? How do you come together in that kind of a situation, blending righteousness and compassion? How do you blend righteousness and compassion if you discover that your spouse is unfaithful or has developed which what is true for a lot of men throughout our country these days, an addiction to pornography and trust in your relationship is destroyed. You feel like divorcing the person, but you still care. And so you're left with this whole tension once again, how, how, do, I, how do I make it difficult decision balancing righteousness and compassion. I mean, at least you and I, we have those kinds of significant issues, can talk to a trusted friend, we can go to a Christian counselor. What is is Joseph supposed to do living in this little village of Nazareth, feeling all alone? But I admire this guy. He could not have imagined an acceptable explanation concerning this woman's pregnancy, but he wants to bring together righteousness and compassion in a way that would protect her from embarrassment and public disgrace. I ask you, is that a normal reaction? I mean, I don't think so. I think the more common response would be to criticize, to condemn. I mean, you've been around people that have been hurt. Rarely is there any expression of of compassion under those circumstances. But the first concern on this man's heart and mind is to do the right thing. No wonder, no wonder God chose Joseph to be the adopted father of his son, Jesus. So may we be like Joseph. Whatever the right thing is for you, may you do the right thing, the Christ-like thing, when we're criticized, betrayed, and disappointed, and feeling grief, and all of the other painful realities that come oftentimes of this season. The world is filled with a lot of defensive, self-absorbed people who see others as the enemy to be destroyed. Blessed are those who want to do the right thing, no matter what that might be. But you know, there are other steps leading to peace. So let's continue to build on this. Next, recognizing that to know peace, we need to listen to the voice of God. Joseph had pretty much made up his mind what he was going to do. He would initiate a divorce very quietly and he would say nothing bad about Mary and carry the hurt and assuming her guilt, she could go ahead and marry the father of this child, whoever that might be, and and he would carry the heartbreak alone. So he's thinking about all of this and he falls asleep and he has a dream. This is what the Bible says. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the angel responds to all of Joseph's fears, his hurts, his disappointments with facts. Joseph, fact number one, Mary is still a virgin. Joseph, fact number two, she's pregnant supernaturally. So this was not the result of a one night stand or an ongoing affair, no, none of the above. Now, we often refer to this as the doctrine of the virgin birth. But you know, technically, there was nothing unusual or supernatural or miraculous about Jesus' birth. I mean, he came through a birth canal just like all of us did, right? What is supernatural is a virgin conception. And references made to that, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So she's pregnant without human sperm. Now, is that something you understand? Uh, No, you don't. I mean, it's never happened, had never happened before or happened since, but it happened on this occasion, okay? And yet, though we don't understand it, the essence of Christianity depends upon the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh. I mean, if Jesus had a human father, the Bible is not true. It says he did not. And if Jesus had human parents, He certainly is not God in human flesh. All of his claims then are a bunch of lies. You and I are still in our sin, and Christmas is just a bad joke. Because why? Jesus' virgin conception, the life that he lived performing miracles his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection three days later, his ascension into heaven, and his promised second coming are a package of deity. It's not as though you can select one or two of these and say, well, I'm not gonna go there with the others. No, all of these are are brought together, okay? So they stand or fall together. Now, The angel instructs Joseph to do a couple of things. First of all, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, so go ahead and have that public ceremony, the actual wedding, that's okay. Go ahead and do that. And then you're to name this boy Jesus. So the tiny baby developing in the uterus of this woman is a a boy. So if Mary gives birth to a girl, I mean, obviously this is no angelic encounter, right? So name the child Jesus, which in Hebrew, which would have been their language, is Yahshua, Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. Very common name at this time that Jesus is living among the Jews, Joshua that is, I mean, it would be like Johnson or Anderson in Minnesota today, you know? I mean, it's really common like that, but by the end of the first century, not so much. Past that of usage, probably because of Christian respect and Jewish scorn. And yet, um, it was especially fitting for this child to be called Yahshua, Jesus, the Lord, is salvation. Why? Because of his mission, notice, He will save his people from their sins. So already it's announced that this child is coming into the world for the purpose of delivering his people that is God's chosen from sin and its consequences. It's not that this child is somehow theoretically going to make salvation available or or possible. He's actually going to save broken, sinful human beings. He's going to save us from sin, that is from sin's penalty, the wrath of God, sin's addictive power, its enslaving power, and also ultimately is going to save us from sin's presence. Wow. Now, Matthew adds another interesting fact that Mary's virgin conception would fulfill a prophecy that goes back 700 years to the time of Isaiah. Now, to put that in, some perspective a little what a week and a half ago we celebrated the 400th anniversary of thanksgiving yeah it was in 1621 that the pilgrims celebrated the first thanksgiving imagine all the history that has taken place in 1621 400 years but we're talking about 700 years of history and matthew includes that in his narrative notice all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah 7:14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means, Matthew tells us, God with us. So this is why Joseph need not be afraid. And it's why you don't have to be afraid either as you go through all of the challenges of this Christmas season, because Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us in our fears. So Joseph wakes up. He must have wondered, man, that's some dream. <laughs> wow. I mean, maybe even questioned for a moment or two if it was real. And if Joseph had gotten on his cell phone and called me and said, hey, Rich, I had this dream last night and tells me all about it, what the angel said. Um, so Rich, tell me, Is this the pepperoni pizza that I had last night? Or, you know, what is this? I would have suggested, Joseph, I think it's real. You're not some whacked out guy who chases after weird dreams. No, you're a man of righteousness. You're concerned to do the God-honoring kind of thing. But you know, as it relates to us, maybe a better question is something like this. What should I do? What should you do facing all of this stress and tension and conflict and difficulty and worries about celebrations and what we do with respect to all of that, what do we do when we're longing for a word from God? I mean, do we wait around, hoping that if we fall asleep some night here, maybe even this coming week, some angel is going to speak to us in a dream? I would not recommend that. I mean, it's possible, of course, that God in his sovereignty would speak to you through a dream in that fashion. But more than likely, he's gonna use the basic means of communicating his voice and message to you that we find elsewhere in scripture. Number one, pray. Tell God you're hurting right now. You're grieving. You're disappointed. Talk to him about it. Pray. Bible says he gives wisdom to those who ask for it. James 1.5. five. Pray. Read scripture. That's how God speaks to us through his written word, the Bible. Talk to a trusted Christian friend about it. And of course, trust God that he's going to get his message to you any way that he wants to. Because the big thing is not the method as much as the message. And I think the message that he's going to give you this Christmas season in the midst of your hurts and challenges is exactly the same message that he gave to Joseph. Which is what? Jesus, Emmanuel, is with us, with us, with you, with me, to calm our fears and to give us peace. Well, there's one other action step, and that's deciding what to do. Joseph wakes up next morning, faces one of the most important decisions of his young life. Matthew tells us about it. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Is that the easy way out? No, I don't think so. I think the easy way out would have been for him to divorce her so he wouldn't have to deal with all the rumors, wouldn't have to raise a child that wasn't his, wouldn't have to live with a lot of unanswered questions. I think that would have been the easy way out. But remember, Joseph is a man of God, a righteous man. And so obeying God and doing what's right were far more important to him than taking the easy way out. And so he demonstrates something that millions of Christians over the centuries have come to understand, even as Joseph understood it when he woke up that following morning, that the right way is often the hard way. Sometimes we choose what is wrong because it's easy. So let's learn from this man, do what is right whether it's easy or not. Now there's one other little part to this story that we need to consider in addition to all of the other stuff that produced emotional strain and pressure. And it's the matter of sexual deprivation. This is how the passage ends. Joseph had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Isn't it interesting to you that the Bible and the telling of the Christmas story would add this little bit of information? Doesn't it on some levels seem too private a matter? I mean, do we really need to know that Joseph and Mary refrained from sexual intimacy from the time of their actual wedding ceremony until sometime after the child Jesus was born? Do we really need to know that? Isn't that a bit private and intimate? Why do we need to know that detail? I think we need to know it. I think we need to know it because it communicates that Joseph believed that Mary was still a virgin. And I think we need to know it also because there would be no doubt that Jesus was supernaturally conceived. Joseph puts God's plan and Jesus' reputation ahead of his own physical desires. I don't know about you, but I just get stressed out thinking about this man, Joseph. Betrothal, betrayal, so he thinks, hurt, anger, dream, decisions, wedding, abstinence, baby. And yet I sense there's a subtleness about this man. And I want to know what's his secret. I think the answer is this baby that the coming of Jesus into this man's life settled his heart. And I think this man then has given us something of a formula for how to come to know peace. Choose what is right. Listen to the voice of God and when you wake up, do what God is instructing you to do and you too, I think, will experience God's peace. Gordon MacDonald is a fairly popular Christian writer former pastor, he was lecturing on one occasion and when he finished his lecture, a Nigerian woman, a physician, came up to him, introduced um, herself to him with her American name. And because Gordon had been to Africa on a number of occasions, he said, well, do you have an African name? Well, yeah, I do. And she mentioned her African name, which is multiple syllables almost musical sounding and he goes wow that's that's beautiful what does your name mean and she goes my name means the child who takes the anger away so gordon says i bet there's a story about that well yeah in fact there really is my parents had been forbidden by their parents to get married and in a tribal culture you don't go against the family. But my parents loved each other so much they decided they were gonna go get married anyway, and they got cut off completely. My dad from his side of the family, my mom from her side of the family, they didn't want anything to do with my parents. But then my mom got pregnant with me. And uh, right after I was born, families decided that they were gonna come together to see this little girl. And they did. And then when they held this child in their arms, all the hostility melted away. And so she said, I was given the name, the child who takes the anger away. You know, the same can be said about another name. He's the child who settles the heart and who brings us peace. And his name is Jesus. And I hope you know him. And I hope you'll make him the focus of your celebration throughout this, especially this Christmas season, because then you will know peace, freedom from strife and conflict, leading to tranquility, harmony, and inner rest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us today of what Christmas really means. That more than decorations and a hype of activity, a child has been born, Jesus, to be our savior from sin, to rule our lives, to calm our fears, to receive our worship, and to give us peace. For all of this, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.